Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14, if you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 10. As we continue looking at the life of Abram in our larger study of the book of Genesis, we come this morning to what is quite possibly the most mysterious chapter of the Old Testament as Abram rescues his nephew Lot and declares his allegiance to the Lord. And so we're in Genesis chapter 14 this morning, and we are going to begin reading with verse 1. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Imim and Shabbath Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the, other, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. And so last week we saw that Abram and Lot went separate ways as Abram settled in the land of Canaan and Lot chose to relocate to the Jordan Valley in the region of Sodom. And as we pick up here in chapter 14, the, the scene changes uh, completely. All right, we've been talking about Abram and Lot and the promised land, uh, but now we're talking a bunch of, of weird names and locations that we're unfamiliar with, and they're very angry. And uh, so we've got Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Lemaer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. And to put things in perspective for you, uh, what's happening here is, is right on the cusp of what we understand to be recorded history in this area of the world. We don't have any information about these other kings uh, beyond what we have here in chapter 14. And so this episode happens either right before human records begin to be kept, or, or it was so early uh, that the records have not survived over the centuries, or they've not been discovered yet. Uh, but these, these guys are kings in various city-states in the region of Mesopotamia, which you may remember is the area where Abram lived before the Lord called him to go to the land of Canaan. And the problem, as we see in verse 2, is that these kings make war against a group of other kings, Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and then an unnamed king of, of Bela. 
all of whom live in the eastern part of the land of Canaan, close to where Abram and Lot are. And so all of these kings come together to fight in, in what the text calls in verse 3 the Valley of Sidim, which it, it tells us is to say the Salt Sea, which we know today as the Dead Sea at the, the southern area of Canaan. Now, what had happened that got us to this point is explained in verse 4. So these five kings in Canaan have been serving Kedor Lemaire. And what that means is that at one point he had conquered these other territories and then given them a choice. You can either serve me by paying taxes and by making your people available to me for manual labor or to fight in battle, or I can kill all of you right now. It was kind of the ancient version of a bully taking your milk money. And so uh, up to this point, we see for 12 years, uh, these other kings and their people had abided by Kedor Lemaire's terms. But now they've decided that they don't want to do that anymore, and so they've informed him that he can take a hike. So these other kings have been compliant for 12 years. Then in the 13th year, they rebel. And so then in verse 5, we see that in the 14th year, Kedor Lemaire and the kings who are with him set out to remind these rebellious subjects of who's in charge. And as you read verses 5 through 7, these kings go on a huge battle tour. They, they sweep across the eastern, the eastern region of Canaan, and they submit every single people group in their way in the process. And it goes beyond the scope of, of our time this morning, but I do want to at least mention that some of these people groups in verses 5 and 7 are, are referred to elsewhere in the Old Testament as being mighty warriors who are fierce in battle. And so the fact that, that Kedor Lemaire just breezes through the region, one city after another, portrays him as an unstoppable military force. This is a bad man with a big, bad army. Now, as interesting as this is, you may be wondering why on earth uh, we're reading about this. What does this have to do with anything in the book of Genesis? Well, we're going to see why this matters as we pick up again, beginning in verse 8. It says, Then the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedor Lemaire, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. So as we pick up again in verse 8, as the Mesopotamian kings make their way down, the five rebel kings go out to the valley of the Dead Sea to meet them in battle. And so if we go back to our map again, I have a new map for us this week, uh, also professionally done as always, uh, we can get a picture of how all this went down. Uh, so the green A uh, represents where Abram has settled in the land of, of Hebron, the Oaks of Mamre, and the L, uh, southeast of that, uh, is, is where Lot has moved into the Jordan Valley between uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And from the top right of the screen, you see the path that these Mesopotamian kings take 
on the way to subject all of these rebel kings. And you, as you follow the, the red map down what's called the King's Highway, uh, you see uh, all of the different people groups that they subject on their way down. And so they, they move down the right side of the map, uh, they loop around until you get to the red dot at the, the Valley of the Dead Sea, which represents uh, where this battle takes place. So we have a showdown here of five armies against four. And interestingly, we don't get any details of the actual battle, but we know that it didn't go very well because verse 10 shows us the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah running for their lives. This did not end well for them. And one of the details we do get is that all around in this area, there are are large bitumen pits full of, of icky, sticky tar. And as, as the, the people are fleeing the battle, uh, we see that some of them end up falling into the pits, which most naturally would, would convey a sense of, of falling into them because they weren't watching where they were going. But it could also involve them intentionally jumping in, uh, perhaps, to, to try to hide uh, from the pursuing soldiers. And then the rest of the people scatter out into the surrounding hill country. And with the battle won, the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian kings... Uh, go out to ransack their conquered cities. And unfortunately, we see in verse 14 that Lot ends up being abducted with it because he is in Sodom. Right? Now, last week we saw that, that Lot moved out near Sodom. He was in the region. But we see now that he eventually moved into Sodom, this exceedingly wicked place that was described last week. And so being in the wrong place at the wrong time, Lot finds himself abducted along with everything he he owns and and being taken away. And of course, we don't know for certain what these kings' intentions are, but it's not to give Lot a life of luxury. This is is a bad thing for him. And so uh, Abram's nephew has been taken captive, and we'll see what happens next as we pick up again in verse 13. It says, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So picking up in verse 13, one of the soldiers who has managed to escape this battle finds his way to Abram and tells him about what has happened. And there are a couple relevant details here. First of all, we want to notice that Abram is is identified as a Hebrew. So this is the first time that we've come across that name, and it serves to identify Abram and his people from from the other people around him, right? You've got Canaanites and Perizzites and Amalekites. So so who are you? Well, I'm Abram. Okay, but but, but what are you? Well, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. Okay. And we aren't sure why that name was chosen, but henceforth, Abram and his people will be identified as Hebrews. And then secondly, we're we're reminded of what we saw last week in verse 18 
uh, of chapter 13, which is that Abram is living by an area of oak trees that are owned by a, na- a man named Mamre, who is an Amorite, along with his brothers Eshcol and Aner. And at the end of verse 13, we see that these brothers were allies of Abram. And what that means is that as Abram has been living in their area, they have made a covenant with each other not to attack one another and to defend one another in the event of a war, in the event of battle. And so in verse 14, when Abram hears that Lot has been taken captive, he springs into action. And perhaps unexpectedly to us, we see that he actually has 318 trained men who've been born into his house. And we saw back in chapter 12 that Abram had acquired people in Haran, whether those were servants or converts who chose to go to Canaan with him. And then in chapter 13, we saw that Pharaoh gave Abram male and female servants. And so uh, that was part of his, his gift package for Sarai. And so Abram's household has a sizable number of people in it at this point. If you factor in potential women and children, it's quite possible that Abram has a thousand people or more who belong to his household, although we remember that none of those are his own in the sense of a child. But at any rate, straight out of a Western movie, Abram takes his 318 trained men, along with whoever is available from among his allies, And he rides out, probably on a camel rather than a horse, and with a sword rather than a six-shooter. But nevertheless, it's very dramatic, and he follows the trail of these Mesopotamian kings until he catches up with them all the way in the northern city of Dan. And then he divides his forces in half, and he ambushes this, this giant, unstoppable army in the middle of the night, and he defeats them. In fact, not only does he beat them, but then as they retreat, he chases them for over 50 miles until they get to the city of Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And so updating our map, if we can for just a moment, we will see where Abram leaves to follow the kings up the north side on the opposite end of where they came down, all the way up to the red dot, which is the city of Dan, which is where Abram ambushes these Mesopotamian kings and defeats them in battle. And then the blue line... Uh, going back up is the route that they took when fleeing from Abram as he chases them uh, completely out of the promised land. He, he runs them out of town, never to come back again. And after that, verse 16 tells us that Abram recovers everything the kings had taken, the people, the possessions, uh, everything, including Lot and everything that he owned. And so Abram has defeated the unbeatable armies of the east and has rescued Lot. And he's going to have a couple diplomatic visitors now as we pick up again, beginning in verse 17. It says, After his return from the defeat of Kedor Lamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor 
of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. And so as Abram returns from his victorious battle, we see that the king of Sodom comes out from hiding to meet him on the way home at a place known as the Valley of, of Shaveh, which in Moses' day was, was known as the King's Valley. And then in verse 18, we're introduced to another person, a man by the name of Melchizedek, who is the king of a place called Salem. Now, we know Salem by its later name, which is Jeru-Salem, uh, the city that would become the center of, of the Israelite uh, life and, and religion. Uh, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to celebrate uh, with and to refresh Abram. And, and we see that not only is he the king of Salem, he is also a priest of the one true God. And so he pronounces a, a blessing on Abram. He says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so this, this king priest who rules over the city of Jerusalem, which we would lead us to, to think that this was a place where the Lord is being worshipped by a full community, pronounces this blessing on Abram. And in response, we see that Abram gives Melchizedek 10% of everything that he has taken from these Mesopotamian kings. He, he presents him with a tithe. 10%. And then in verse 21, the king of Sodom approaches, and, and he has some demands. He says, give me the persons. In other words, although he was completely defeated and ran for his life, he still wants to be a king. And of course, a king needs people to, to rule over. And he offers Abram all of the plunder and loot that has been taken if he will just give him the people back in exchange. Of course, uh, the plunder isn't really his to offer, right? He lost it, and Abram has earned it, and so this plunder belongs to Abram. He's, this, this king from Sodom is not in a position to barter, but again, this is the king of what has been described as an exceedingly wicked city, so it shouldn't necessarily be surprising to us that he feels entitled and shameless. But in response, Abram insists in verse 22 that he has no interest in the plunder, we see that he has made a vow to God that he would take absolutely nothing, not even a, something that has no value, like a, a shoelace or a sandal strap, lest this king think that he has contributed to, to, to Abram's greatness in any way. Abram is, is believing God's promise, and he knows that his blessing is going to come from the Lord. He does acknowledge that his men have been eating in the process of fighting this battle, and, and he considers that to be enough payment for him, although he does ask that his allies be given a share for themselves. So in other words here, Abram is crystal clear that he wants nothing to do with Sodom. He didn't do this for them, and he wants absolutely no partnership. He's not looking to get tangled up with them in any way, in sharp contrast to, to how Lot has acted. And so with that, Abram departs to go back home. And so in our passage this morning, Abram rescues Lot out of captivity to a group of foreign kings, 
And he drives these enemies out of the promised land. And as we read the story, we're certainly seeing God's promises to Abram continuing to develop. Right? The Lord has, has blessed those who are blessing him. Melchizedek and Abram's allies get a tenth of all of the plunder from this battle. Those who dishonor Abram, these, these Mesopotamian kings, have, have endured the curse of God in battle. And Abram's name is beginning to become great as he becomes increasingly recognized on an international stage. And as we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, I think that there is once again some foreshadowing here. I think that Abram driving these wicked kings out of the promised land foreshadows the nation of Israel driving out the wicked nations as they come into the promised land, which, which then prefigures how the church engages in spiritual warfare against God's enemies by making disciples of Jesus from all nations, which in turn prefigures how Jesus will eventually establish his kingdom and defeat all of his enemies once and for all when he returns on the last day. And so in the providence of God, everything that happens here is pointing forward in some way to what God is going to do through Jesus. But then we might be getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit, because what does Jesus have to do with any of this? How does, how does Jesus uh, and, and, and Melchizedek or, or anything in this story uh, fit together? And, and the answer is that Jesus and Melchizedek are very closely connected with each other. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that uh, this is a topic that has at least as many questions as it has answers. I mentioned at the very beginning, this is one of the most mysterious chapters in the Old Testament. There are a lot of things about Melchizedek we don't know, but there are a few very important things that we can say with confidence, and so that's what we need to give our attention to here, and you can come back tonight for the Q&A, and we can try to hash out some of the rest of it. First of all, we should recognize that this is the only appearance of Melchizedek in the Bible. Uh, he comes in here seemingly out of nowhere, and then the story moves on, and you never see him again. He's, he's there, and he's gone just as quickly. This is all we have. And yet, as I, I just alluded to, Melchizedek has a significant influence on how we understand Jesus. And so almost a thousand years after this story takes place, King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about the future Messiah. And he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so like uh, David, this Messiah is going to be a king. And like Abram in our story, the Lord is going to give his enemies over to him. But then in verse 3, David goes on to write, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's been a thousand years. Nobody has seen or heard from this guy. But you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so David, in this moment, is looking back a thousand years to Genesis chapter 14, and he is recognizing, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that like Melchizedek, the future Messiah will be a king who is also a priest. He, he is someone who will deliver God's people from their enemies, and he is someone who will mediate between God and his people. Then, a thousand years after David, 
The author of Hebrews spends three chapters, written chapters 5 through 7, explaining how this is ultimately fulfilled in and through Jesus. And this is important because we know that Jesus is our messianic king and our, our high priest. We need him to be those things. But it doesn't work in necessarily the way that we would think that it, that it would. You see, Jesus is born from the tribe of Judah. Right? This is David's line, which is why Jesus is qualified to sit on David's throne. But because Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, that means he is not from the tribe of Levi, which means that he is not qualified to serve as a priest under the Old Testament law. All of the priests have to come from the tribe of Levi. And so uh, what this means is that under the law, you could be a king or you could be a priest, but you couldn't be both. And yet we need Jesus to be both. And so what David and the author of Hebrews want us to understand is that Jesus' priestly ministry is tied to, to a priest and a, and a priestly ministry that, that comes, is already in place and is functioning before the law is ever given. And if I'm understanding the, the flow of the argument correctly, then in the same way that Paul well, by the same logic that Paul uses in Galatians 3 to explain that the giving of the law did not nullify a pre-existing promise that God would deliver his people through the Messiah, in the same way, the giving of the law does not nullify a pre-existing priesthood, which Melchizedek is and Melchizedek represents. And it is to that order of the priesthood that Jesus is appointed by God. So taking it from a different angle, Hebrews 7 points out that, that Abram gives 10%. He gives this tithe to Melchizedek. And he argues that this points to, to Melchizedek's superiority over Abram. Right? You don't pay a tithe to someone who ranks below you. You pay a tithe to someone who ranks above you. And because the Levitical priests are established through Abram's lineage then if Melchizedek ranks above Abram, that means that he and his priesthood are also superior to the Levitical priests. And so Jesus, being appointed a priest after the order of Melchizedek, this random dude in Genesis chapter 14, explains how he can function for us as both prophet, or as, both as king and priest. And, and it also explains how in contrast to the Levitical priests who had to constantly continue to make offerings and sacrifices over and over again, Jesus can fulfill his mission to redeem God's people once and for all by making a full and final atonement for everyone who will place their trust in what he has done for them through the, his life, death, and resurrection. And so what we need to understand is that Abram's brush with this Melchizedek, this mysterious king-priest of Salem, actually sets the stage for understanding how God's promises to Abram are ultimately going to be fulfilled through his offspring, who is Jesus. In other words, while our sin has separated us from God and makes us deserving and worthy of eternal judgment, our salvation has been accomplished by the one person who was actually qualified to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin, and who was appointed as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So church, as, as Abram brought an offering to Melchizedek, 
this morning, let's offer praise, honor, glory, and our very lives in service of our King and our great High Priest who has rescued us from captivity to sin and death and made atonement for our sin to reconcile us to God through his life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, in your wisdom, you give us passages of Scripture that are mysterious and that raise questions that we don't have answers to. And yet we thank you for the fact that you have given us all that we need to know. And so, Father, we thank you this morning that that in Abram's encounter coming out of battle from his enemies that you delivered into his hands, he meets Melchizedek, this this priest-king of Jerusalem, who ultimately points forward to the the true and greater priest-king who is your son, Jesus, who has delivered us from our captivity to sin and death and has made atonement so that we can be reconciled to you through faith in what he has done. And so, Father, as we take time now to respond to your word, I pray that you would lead us by your spirit, Father, that all that we do would honor and glorify you because you are worthy. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.